0: All right, I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS. Your reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated speculative fiction book club podcast by Click Temple Media. This episode, we're talking about The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This one was chosen by our Patreon supporters in a poll that pitted it against two other sword and sorcery books. These were The Tritonian Ring by L. Sprague de Camp, and Bloodstone by Carl Edward Wagner. Now, The Hour of the Dragon is a Conan novel. It's the only Conan novel, though Howard did write some fairly substantial Conan novellas as well. But this was never actually published as a book in Howard's tragically short lifetime. Rather, it was serialized in the great magazine Weird Tales over a period of five months at the end of 1935 and at the beginning of 1936. But I've read it in The Bloody Crown of Conan, which is part of the Del Rey series that collects everything that Robert E. Howard wrote and uh, collects them in their original unedited versions. It's a really great series, and I, I highly recommend it. I don't actually have a lot of experience with Conan. My interest in Robert De Howard has always been his horror stories set in the contemporary world. Uh, I think his story, The Blackstone, is almost perfect. And we had a, a really fun time covering Casanetto's last song on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. Of the 20 or so Conan stories, I've only read five or six of them, and that includes this one now. And one of the interesting features of Conan stories is that even though Howard wrote all of these stories over a, a four-year period... He set them all at varying points in Conan's own 25-year career, and he did this randomly, depending on what type of story he wanted to write. And so the very first Conan story, which is called The Phoenix on the Sword, is actually set very near the end of Conan's career. And it turns out, though I didn't know it until I started reading, that this one is as well, even though it is the second-to-last Conan story Howard wrote. And this was really great for me, because Brandon and I just recorded one of our monthly Patreon episodes about the Phoenix on the Sword, and so I was freshly prepared for the Hour of the Dragon. But all right, I will stop this long preamble and and get us into the main attraction here. The Hour of the Dragon opens with an epigram. This is an original poem by Howard, which is often a feature of his stories. Sadly, this is the only one that will get in this book, and since I don't think Howard's poetry gets nearly enough attention... I just want to set the tone of the episode by reading it to you. The lion banner sways and falls in the horror-haunted gloom. A scarlet dragon rustles by, borne on winds of doom. In heaps the shining horsemen lie, where the thrusting lances break. And deep in the haunted mountains, the lost black gods awake. Dead hands grope in the shadows, the stars turn pale with fright. For this is the dragon's hour, the triumph of fear and night. And and wow, well, I, I just love the imagery of this poem. It tells us everything that this story is going to be about. Horsemen in shining armor with banners that have a lion or a dragon on them, but also about gloom and doom, uh, about haunted places and shadows and evil gods and necromancy. And the lion and dragon banners, which are going to be literal in this story, are also metaphors for good and evil. So we know that we are in for some type of epic fantasy here, even if Conan is really the archetype of sword and sorcery. And of course, that's why we're looking at this story, and it is something that we're going to talk about in the next segment— As I said in the introduction, this is a story that is both late in Howard's writing of Conan and late in Conan's own career. And so I want to do some backstory before we really get into the plot of this book. We tend to think of Conan as Conan the Barbarian in our pop culture. Largely, this is because of the classic Arnold movie, which I have not seen in forever, and I suspect is classically bad, though that might be a fun Patreon episode to do someday. And Conan is a barbarian. He's from a culture that doesn't live in cities. And Conan has had plenty of adventures as a kind of mercenary, or pirate, or thief, working in the sprawling speculative world that Howard conceives for him. But at the end of his career, he is no longer an adventurer or a mercenary, but really he's the emperor of Howard's analog to the Roman Empire, which he calls Aquilonia, after the city in Italy. And Conan got this position through his work as a mercenary soldier. Uh, Being so good at killing people, Conan eventually became a general in the Aquilonian army. And when there was a succession crisis, he won a series of civil wars, and now he's in charge. And this is something with very close historical analogs, as everything in this world has. And Howard here really is thinking about figures such as Stilicho and Ricimer, who were barbarian soldiers who became the, the commanders-in-chief and powers behind the throne of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century. And as I've said, the, the world that Howard invents for his Conan stories really is an analog for the ancient Mediterranean world and its periphery. And so Aquilonia has an imperial rival called Numidia, which is a stand-in for Persia. And that rivalry drives the plot of the story, which opens with a Numidian invasion of the furthest provinces of Aquilonia. Conan is there with an army. He's ready to meet and vanquish the invaders. But the morning of the battle, Conan is attacked in his tent by what we might call a shadow monster, and he's seriously wounded. Conan can't fight, and since this is potentially disastrous for morale, he lets one of his generals play Patroclus here and wear his armor into battle, while Conan himself recovers and watches the combat from afar. And this ends in a disaster, as the Aquilonian army falls for a, a ruse, and Conan's general is crushed in a rock slide that's perpetrated by a sorcerer, who is going to turn out to be the villain of the story. That sorcerer, I- his name is Xaltatun... So Xaltatun takes Conan to the Nemedian king's nearby palace and throws him in the dungeon to save him for a rainy day, or, you know, some other time when he might be useful for some purpose. Conan is not going to stay in that dungeon for long, of course, and it's really just a question of how he's going to escape. In this case, it's not really through any agency of his own, uh, because he's helped out by a sex slave in the Nemedian king's harem. This woman had seen Conan once before when he was here on a state visit, and she's been in love with him ever since. And so when she hears that Conan is in the dungeon, she steals a key from the guard and goes down there to help him escape. And if you've read any Sword and Sorcery before, I think you would expect here that the idea is that she'll go with him and be his kind of sexy companion on his upcoming adventures. But that is actually not the case. She, here she just gives him the key and he goes out a, a different door. But even with this key, Conan still has to do some sneaking through the palace tunnels where he kills a gray ape, which Howard describes as one of the grisly man-eaters from the forests that wave on the mountainous eastern shores of the Sea of Villayette. Half mythical and altogether horrible, these apes were the goblins of Hyborian legendry and were in reality ogres of the natural world, cannibals and murderers of the knighted forests. And I love this description. It is totally out of proportion to the type of obstacle that the great ape is. But this is really such a hallmark of Howard's wonderful prose. And we'll talk about that later on. But all right, from here, Conan has a series of adventures getting out of Numidia. This includes killing an elite soldier to take his horse. He escapes a spy bird and he has to climb some rough terrain. But fortunately, he's not actually too far from the border, and so he's able to slip into Aquilonia, where people are willing to help him. The first of these people is an old woman with a pet wolf, who can do some magic and know some stuff about the world. And foremost, she knows that Aquilonia is in bad shape, especially the capital city, and she's even able to show this to Conan through her magic— And so what's at stake is not merely that Conan needed to escape to get back to his land, but that his land itself is under the murdery occupation of a hostile army. And what's even worse is that at the head of this army is a native Aquilonian, someone with a family connection to the previous regime, the the one that was replaced by Conan. And so this guy has a score to settle against his homeland for choosing Conan instead of him. And we're going to see this in action in a few different ways. Uh, first, Conan, who is still making his way to the capital, comes to the estate of uh, a member of the provincial elite. Uh, this is someone Conan knows personally. And the place is a wreck. This guy's estate is a-, a wreck because of the usurper's heavy taxation. In the capital, when Conan gets there, things are even worse, as Numidian soldiers are actively executing Aquilonians, on the orders of the usurper, who is interested in vengeance. uh, And and also he's interested in taking people's property. But he's not interested in being a good ruler of Aquilonia. Now that he's in the capital, Conan encounters a priest of a small and unpopular religion devoted to Asura. And this priest knows the only way that Conan can free Aquilonia from this foreign oppression. Because it turns out that Xaltatun isn't just any sorcerer. No. In fact, Zaltatune has actually been dead for 3,000 years and has been resurrected. 3,000 years ago, Zaltatune was the ruler of Acheron as an evil sorcerer and also as a devotee of the evil god Set. And his downfall was itself only the product of some seriously epic stuff that, uh, it seems to me at least, Howard intended to write as its own story at some point. And so now, somehow, Zaltatune has been resurrected and is the power behind the throne in Nemedia. And this is a problem for the entire world, because of course his ambition will be conquest and subjugation and subservience. Merely defeating the Numidian army in battle, then, is not going to be enough to save Aquilonia. But Zaltatune, it turns out, cannot be defeated without a magical object called the Heart of Aramen. And that's all been the first part of the book. And so now the middle part of the book is going to be Conan's quest for this object, his quest for the heart of Ehriman. Unfortunately, he has already encountered it, though he didn't know it at the time. Back when he was making his escape from the dungeon in Nemedia, he overheard the Nemedian king sending a servant on an errand to throw the heart of Araman into the ocean. And so now all Conan has to do is intercept this guy. Now, of course, it, it can't actually be that simple, and Conan quickly discovers that the Numidian servant has been killed, and the heart of Araman has been taken by bandits, and even when Conan catches up to them, the object eludes him, and he has to follow it through several more locations. We meet some pirates, and Conan is enslaved and made to row a galley until he leads a slave uprising on this ship, and then he ends up in the land of Stygia, which is a stand-in for Egypt, and this is where the longest part of the quest storyline takes place. The Heart of araman has been taken by a priest of Set, and, and Set is the, the chief god in this version of ancient Egypt. As Conan is following this priest down some city streets, he encounters a religious ritual in which a gigantic serpent of Set is let out of the temple to prowl the streets and eat whoever it wants. It's a, it's a big python. It's going to eat somebody. And all the Stygians bow down to the snake because it is sacred to their god, and they simply accept that they may be chosen for a meal. But not Conan. Conan kills the serpent before he sneaks into the temple, where he kills a priest and steals his clothes so that he can now walk around in disguise. And the priest with the Heart of Airmen is not here in this temple, but Conan learns that he's nearby, hanging out in a, a giant pyramid. And so he makes his way there. And inside the pyramid, Conan encounters a beautiful woman who super wants to make out with him, but who turns out to be a mummy who is only interested in stealing his life force so that she can continue to exist as a, a real person. And if you're thinking that this sounds like the exact plot of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, Inca Mummy Girl, well, yeah, it is. Conan runs away from this immortal princess mummy and then figures out where the priest with the heart of Araman is. But it turns out that Conan is not the only one looking for the heart. Uh, there are some magical servants of Xaltatun who have tracked it here as well. And Conan watches a brawl between these magical servants of Xaltatun and the priests. And then he comes in at the end to kill the last of Zaltatune's people and take the heart of Araman for himself. And so, now that Conan has the magical object of his quest, it is time to resolve the plot by killing Zaltatune and liberating Aquilonia, which means it's time for a showdown. And this proceeds exactly as you would expect, but also in, I think, quite a satisfying manner. There are really three different bad guys in this story. There's the Aquilonian usurper who has tormented his own people. There's the King of Nemedia, and then there is Zaltatune, and each of them is dealt with separately and and dealt with by the thematically appropriate people. The Aquilonian usurper, for example, is lured away with an army of his own and then trapped in a, a magical fog in some hills, and he's defeated by native Aquilonians whom he dispossessed. And then there is a, a full-on battle between the armies of Aquilonia and Nemedia. And then while this is going on, Zaltatune is preparing a human sacrifice that will sorcerously tip the scales of this battle in favor of Nemedia. But he's defeated by the Heart of Araman. And at the same time, Conan's forces win the battle. And in the end here, with Zaltatune dead, Conan decides to spare the life of the Nemedian king in exchange for war reparations and especially for one small personal favor. And that favor is that the Nemedian king will free the sex slave who helped Conan escape so that she can now be the new queen of Aquilonia. And so Howard's only Conan novel kind of ends like a Shakespearean comedy with a wedding. Okay, themes and motifs. There are two things I want to do in our themes and motifs segment, and one of them is really a theme, but I actually want to start by talking about genre, about what type of story this is. And this is a question that Brandon and I talk about with some regularity on Elder Sign, our our weird fiction podcast, but it's never really come up here on ATAS, other than when I have occasionally given a story, a, a label in order to facilitate the recap and since the reason that we're talking about The Hour of the Dragon at all is because I decided that we had done way too many episodes without reading any Sword and Sorcery, I think it's worth spending some time talking about genres, about subgenres, and maybe especially about publishing categories. Plus, also, it feels like it's been a while since I've put my professor hat on, and at the time of recording this, I'm really supposed to be spending my time getting ready for the start of the academic year and not reading Conan stories, so uh, this will help me transition over to that part of my life a little bit, I hope. Most of us use the word genre incorrectly. And, in fact, so many of us do it, and we do it so often that it is probably fair to say that the word "genre" now has a technical meaning and a popular meaning that are quite different, quite distinct from each other. We tend to think of science fiction, fantasy, romance, uh, mystery we, we we tend to think of those as genres, but really those are publishing categories they're they're not genres in a technical sense, and we'll return to that in a few minutes. But genre really refers to what type of literature a certain work is. Uh, the word itself, genre, derives from the Latin word genus, which itself has two meanings. Uh, the first is broad, and it simply means kind or type. So what kind of thing is this? What type of thing is this? And we experience this meaning when we just wholesale use the word genus in our taxonomical pyramid, for example. The second meaning of genus, or genus if you want to anglicize it, has to do with birth, with descent, with origin. And just as we get the word genre from genus, we also get the words generate and generation. And so when we're talking about genre in this technical sense, we're talking about a taxonomy of types of literature. In the ancient world, the first question to ask of a work of literature was whether it was prose or poetry. And so we might even map this idea onto the biological taxonomy by saying that literature is the kingdom, and then prose and poetry are the phylum level. And let's just take poetry as an example here, because that's really the ancestor of the books that we read in this book club, even though everything we read is in prose, and we can blame the 18th century for that. So the next step would be to ask, what type of poetry? is this lyric, epic, or dramatic? And for us, as moderns, we're very concerned about the content of the story when we want to classify along these lines, right? When when you hear the word epic, you are thinking about content or, or subject matter. But for the ancients, content was largely irrelevant. This was a question of form, not of content. How you know a poem is an epic poem and not a lyrical or dramatic poem is because of the meter and because of the length the subject matter, the the content, wasn't really a factor. Yes, it is true that the works written in dactylic hexameter—that's the the verse of epic—are mostly about gods and heroes, but they don't actually have to be. And there are examples from the ancient world of epics of dactylic hexameter that's not concerned about this at all. At the same time, not every story that is about gods and heroes has to be in epic verse, has to be in dactylic hexameter. For one, and and of course you're familiar with this, most of the ancient literature that we have about gods and heroes actually comes from drama rather than epic. Uh, That is, they share the same content, but are clearly distinct genres because their forms are different. And that's the best example here. But I would never forgive myself if I didn't take just a minute to talk about my favorite poet of all time. This is the Roman poet Ovid, whose poem The Metamorphoses is the source of most of the the Greek and Roman mythology that you know, and also the inspiration for every art museum in Europe and North America. That poem is an epic. It's long, it's written in dactylic hexameter, but it mostly tells stories that are funny or tragic and not very often about heroes, though some of the stories are. And the later books of the poem are are even about recent Roman history. What actually connects all of these stories is that they all involve a transformation, a a metamorphosis. On the other hand, though, Ovid's poem that deals with the the famous heroes of epics, a, a work even called the heroides, is in elegiac couplets. And so it's not an epic, no matter what its content is. And so to bring this technical definition of genre back to our contemporary world, the world we live in now, novel is a genre that is distinct from other types of literature. And we can easily think of some features that distinguish a novel from other types of books. Novels are in prose, not verse. They're long, and we even have word-length requirements to distinguish a novel from, say, a short story. And novels are fictional. They're they're made-up stories, right? And of course, we can further divide novel into other categories, other genres, and we do. But someone thinking technically would not be asking whether the book has spaceships in it, but instead would be asking whether it's written in third person or first person, or whether it's serialized and other types of formal distinctions rather than content distinctions. All right, so that was all much longer than I intended because, you know, I like ancient poetry. So let me try to get us back to Conan here. So the question is, how do we get to the idea that a genre isn't about the technical features of a work of literature, but is in fact about its content as the way we use the word? Well, that is an idea that's popularized by the publishing industry, and it's one that grew up with the publishing industry itself as it began in the 19th century, which is also when prose fiction became the dominant storytelling mode in literature. And, you know, we can thank Jane Austen for that. And as more and more people became literate and as they had disposable income to spend on stories in the the form of cheap magazines and less frequently on actual books, it was important for business owners, just to say publishers, to tell their potential customers what was inside the magazine or what was inside the, the book. And so these publishing categories—or really, maybe we might even call them marketing categories—were born. And this is things like romance and science fiction and horror and mystery. And this is also why pulp magazines of the early 20th century bared names like Weird Tales and Planet Tales and Spicy Mystery Stories— And yeah, that last one is real. I did not make that up. And this, I think, can get us back to Conan, because, of course, we're all nerds here, and we love to classify things. And so we certainly are not going to stop with just labeling something as fantasy. We want to know what type of fantasy story we're going to get if we buy this book or buy that magazine. And this is precisely because even these publishing categories are pretty big tents that can house a lot of variation and a lot of variety right? We all know someone, in fact, you might even be that someone who loves urban fantasy but can't stand anything with knights or dragons, or vice versa. And so we have subgenres. And as I said long ago, long ago now, in our introductory episode, I'm not really concerned with the type of gatekeeping arguments that people have about whether Star Wars and Star Trek are really science fiction or if they're actually some kind of fantasy story or something else altogether. In fact, I'm really openly hostile to those types of discussions. Still, though, I I think actually it would be a fun and useful exercise to think about what subgenre of fantasy the Hour of the Dragon belongs to, and what that can tell us about the history of the genre. Okay, so as I've said a few times already, we're all here right now because I wanted to read some Sword and Sorcery. So let's start by talking about what Sword and Sorcery is. And there is every chance that you are going to end up disagreeing with me, end up disagreeing with what I think sword and sorcery is. In fact, you might even end up shaking your fist in the air, though, you know, please drive safely. And I'll say I'm looking forward to reading your thoughts about what elements are necessary and sufficient to qualify something as sword and sorcery. And let's pause for a second on this concept of necessary and sufficient. And what we're looking for here are all of the elements that are necessary for something to be called sword and sorcery. The two, three, five things a story has to have to count as sword and sorcery. Without even just one of them, it won't count and will have to be classified as something else. That's the necessary part the sufficient part asks us which elements are enough to qualify a story as sword and sorcery. And and this is really important when we're talking about different flavors of sword and sorcery, and maybe even more so when we're blending subgenres. All right, but before we start making our list of what's necessary and sufficient here, what the criteria are, let's take a look at the origins of this phrase, sword and sorcery. It originated 30 years after Howard invented Conan, right? It's not a phrase, not a term that Howard himself used. And it actually comes from Fritz Lieber, who was in conversation with Michael Moorcock about what they should call their subgenre of fantasy. And both of them agreed that Howard was the the common point of origin for them, that they were writing the way Howard did. They were telling the types of stories that Howard did. And the idea behind sword and sorcery here was to distinguish it from historical fiction, which was often called cloak and sword. And the idea here is that even though both types of stories take place in pre-modern cultures without guns, but with sophisticated metalworking, one of them has elements of the magical or supernatural, and the other doesn't. And so that's two criteria right there from Fritz Lieber himself, who came up with this term, pre-modern technology and some element of the magical or supernatural— And I agree that those are necessary components, but are they sufficient? And of course they aren't, right? Because otherwise the vast majority of fantasy would fall under this rubric. So what else do we need to make something sword and sorcery? And in particular, what distinguishes sword and sorcery from epic fantasy like The Lord of the Rings? And here I'm going to draw on a book that I find really useful. And this is Philip Martin's The Writer's Guide to Fantasy Literature, though I also like his book, A Guide to Fantasy Literature. And he points to the scale of the story and the nature of the protagonist as important criteria for sword and sorcery. And I'm inclined to agree. One of the things that distinguishes sword and sorcery from epic fantasy is that the adventures are small in scale. They're personal, and in fact, they're often quite local. One person is after vengeance against one other person for something pertinent only to him. Or maybe a village is being oppressed by some nearby brigands, and fortunately, a hero has wandered by who's willing to be paid in beer. And this is in contrast to epic fantasy, where the scale is much larger, and so are the stakes, right? We're, we're dealing with whole realms, and often in these stories, often in epic fantasy, the fate of everyone ever is in jeopardy. But also, as Martin indicates, the nature of the protagonist is also quite different. In Sword and Sorcery, the hero is morally gray. This is usually someone who enjoys fighting and doesn't have moral qualms about killing, and who often just works for money or beer. And they do, of course, draw the line at horrible things like murdering children, and they often despise slavery, even if they themselves live in a slave society. Because these people do still have to be at least morally gray to us, the reader, and not morally, well, well evil, right? But the real contrast is with characters we would describe in d terms as lawful good. They're not paladins. They're not knights of the round table trying to bring justice to the world for free. So in the end, for me at least, these four elements are necessary and also sufficient to label something sword and sorcery. One, uh, a pre-modern culture with sophisticated metallurgy for bladed weapons, some supernatural or magical aspect, a morally gray adventurer, and a small personal scale to the story. And Conan stories typically have these elements, especially the classic stories. But here, and, and, and finally, here is the real question I want to ask. Is The Hour of the Dragon a sword and sorcerer story? And I don't think it is let's go through our list. We certainly got the right technology, and we've got more than enough of the supernatural here. But the scale of this story is massive. It's not a personal matter or even an adventure that only Conan and maybe a few members of his Scooby gang are having. This is a story about geopolitics involving a massive number of named characters and multiple institutions and with major stakes for the entire world. And that sounds pretty epic to me. Now, granted, there is this whole middle part of the book where the geopolitics slip away and Conan is fighting giant snakes and pirates and mommy princesses, and all of that is definitely a sword and sorcery story. But it is squarely within this epic fantasy frame. And on top of all of this, Conan, who so often is not someone I would want in my life, in this story, Conan is not morally gray. And not just because he's fighting Sauron light, but really because Conan's motives are to protect others. In this story, Conan is not motivated by his love of fighting and adventure, or by a desire for vengeance. He's not fighting for money. He's fighting because he feels a sense of duty to his subjects, perhaps even a love for his subjects. He's not actually fighting as Conan in this story. He's fighting as the king. And I want to explore this theme for a while before we return to this question of whether this is sword and sorcery, or really, maybe more broadly, the question of what type of story this is. Uh, We'll get back to that in our strengths and weaknesses segment one of the things that I love about these Del Rey collections of Howard's work is that they have some scholarly apparatus. And this includes drafts and, and variants for many of the stories, also letters that Howard wrote about certain stories, and also some articles by Howard scholars. And this volume, which is The, the Bloody Crown of Conan, has a really excellent article by Patrice Louinet called Hyborian Genesis Part 2. And here, he's he's largely concerned with narrating the, the impetus for and also the, the process of writing the longer Conan works, uh, including the novellas. And, and this is really uh, absolutely fascinating. But he also points to some of the themes and motifs of these works. And the one that jumped out to me the most in the text is the extent to which The Hour of the Dragon draws on elements of medieval Grail stories, uh, medieval King Arthur stories. Now, this is something that Luine only devotes about a page to, but but I want to give it some more attention. And Brandon and I took note of a connection between Conan and King Arthur when we covered the Phoenix on the Sword, which was, I'll remind you, the, the very first Conan story. And because of that, we weren't certain if it was an idea that Howard stuck with through other Conan stories. And I'm still not sure, since this is the only Conan story I've read since we did that episode, since we had that insight. The Arthurian element in that story is the idea of a once-and-future king the idea that there was in the past some heroic savior who will return from the dead to save his people when the need arises again. Now, that's not Conan in that story, but Conan encounters this person who in turn gives Conan his magical sword to use. I mean, it's not quite Excalibur, but it may as well be. And this guy more or less ordains Conan as a holy warrior in a cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Now, my recollection of the other Conan stories that I've read is that this does not really feature in them. But of course, those stories all happen early in Conan's biography, even if Howard did write those stories later. And so I think it's possible to see this as something that Conan becomes only in his 40s, only after he's led a life of adventure and also misadventure. And we certainly have something like that here in the Hour of the Dragon, where Conan once again is dealing with an evil sorcerer who serves the evil god Set and wants to usher in a kind of hell on earth. But in the Hour of the Dragon, Conan's status as a holy warrior of the god Mithra is non-existent here. In fact, if anything, he's just carrying out the plans of the priests of the god Asura, which is a kind of underground cult, a kind of holdover from before the Mithra religion, which is an analog for Christianity, by the way, before the Mithra religion had spread to Aquilonia. And I'll just note here, too, that Howard hasn't made up Asura. Uh, Asura is something from the Indo-Iranian part of the Indo-European religious family, and Howard has this parallel in mind. And so Conan, in this story, is an agent of Asura in this battle against this agent of Set, the, the evil sorcerer, Zaltatun. But that's not even the Arthurian element that Luine has in mind in this essay, what he points to is that Howard is drawing on the wasteland and Fisher King aspect of the Grail quest that appears in some medieval Arthurian romances, and most prominently appears in Chretien de Troyes' poem, Percival, colon, The Story of the Grail. And what this story is all about is the relationship between the virtue of the king and the prosperity of the land he rules. And in these stories, the the Fisher King is magically wounded, and as a result of this magical wound, his realm is also wounded— And the only way that the land can be healed is if the king is healed, and the king can only be healed by the grail. And this is all over the Hour of the Dragon. The witch Conan encounters when he returns to Aquilonia essentially just lays it out for him. And and here's what she tells him. Find the heart of your kingdom. There lies your defeat and your power. You fight more than mortal man. You will not press the throne again unless you find the heart of your kingdom. And in this moment, Conan does not understand that she's talking about the heart of Eremin though he does remember this scene later and think about it in this context. But that's because she is also speaking metaphorically. In this moment, Conan is still being motivated by a type of vengeance inertia. And it's not until he really understands the sickness that has befallen Aquilonia that he finds his true motivation in healing the land. You know, by going out and killing all the bad guys. And later, Conan expresses a real love of his adopted country when he's talking with his friend uh, about the shifting geopolitics now that Namedia has been defeated. Conan declines to conquer lands that he probably could in this new world order now that Namedia is ruined. And what he says is that he's happy with a, a kingdom of people who have chosen him, and he does not need an empire born out of conquest and born out of subjugation. I'll say, too, that we can even see Conan's mysterious magical wound at the beginning of the book as akin to the Fisher King's wound, though I, I do wish that Howard had done more with this, and I'll have more to say on that in the next segment. But something that I think Howard does really well here is to show us a, a kind of anti-Fisher King in the character of Xaltatun, who is actively poisoning Nemedia as he tries to resurrect the necromantic kingdom of Acheron. And, and this is one of the coolest parts of the book, and Howard does an awesome job with it. So let me just read some of this to you, because it's it's just fabulous. But while in both Aquilonia and Nemedia, men talked of the madness of the king, in Nemedia, men talked much of Xaltatun, the masked one. Yet few saw him on the streets of Belveris. Men said he spent much time in the hills, in curious conclaves with surviving remnants of an old race, dark, silent folk who claimed descent from an ancient kingdom. Men whispered of drums beating far up in the dreaming hills, of fires glowing in the darkness, and strange chantings born on the winds, chantings and rituals forgotten centuries ago, except as meaningless formulas mumbled beside mountain hearths in villages whose inhabitants differed strangely from the people of the valleys. And here's another passage just a a page later. It's a a bit of dialogue spoken by a a minor character whose name we don't need to know. You know little of his black powers. I have seen the very hills take on an alien and ancient aspect under the spell of his incantations. I have glimpsed, like shadows behind the realities, the dim shapes and outlines of valleys, forests, mountains, and lakes that are not as they are today, but as they were in that dim yesterday, have even sensed, rather than glimpsed, the purple towers of forgotten python, shimmering like figures of mist in the dark. And this type of stuff gives me goosebumps. And and I think Howard has done something really masterful here with how he's playing with someone intentionally creating a mythical wasteland and, and dreaming of doing that to the entire world. Now, I don't believe that Howard was familiar with medieval literature. I, I don't think that he'd ever actually read any Chretien uh, de Troyes or Geoffrey of Monmouth, though maybe he did read some Mallory, which would actually have been available in a modern English translation for him. But Mallory doesn't actually have any of this Fisher King and Wasteland stuff in it. So where I suspect, and I'm sure this could actually be demonstrated from Howard's uh, letters and maybe some of his other writings from drafts and so on, and if it hasn't already, then this will actually make for a great article for an academic journal. All right, so so where I think Howard got this idea is a pair of wildly popular books by Jesse Weston. Jesse Weston was an amateur folklorist and an armchair anthropologist in the UK during the, the first part of the 20th century. She published a book called The Quest for the Holy Grail in 1913, and then another book called From Ritual to Romance in 1920. And it's this second book that was more important, and and it was also a much bigger seller, and it's the one that I'm sure that Howard read. And frankly, I think Lovecraft read it as well, and I would not at all be surprised to learn that they wrote letters to each other about this book, but I don't know their correspondence. But anyway, the the main argument of From Ritual to Romance is that the Fisher King and Wasteland element of Arthurian Romance is a holdover from a pre-Christian, pre-Roman, Indo-European kingship ritual. And indeed, the the, the whole story of the Holy Grail itself is wrapped up in this, and it's not really a Christian idea. It just gets Christianized by medieval poets. And so the idea is that in Indo-European prehistory, and hey, that's what Conan is explicitly, it's supposed to be Indo-European prehistory, or really even pre-Indo-European. So in Indo-European prehistory, according to Weston, the mythical connection between the king and the land was a central part of political philosophy and even of cosmology, and it was the subject of religious ritual. And so it's no surprise that this shows up in Howard's fictional account of a good king in European prehistory, and also in his account of a bad king at the same time. Now, that's really all I want to say about this. But before we move on, I do want to plug a few things. And the first is that I've talked about some of this before when Brandon and I covered Arthur Mackin's story, Out of the Earth, on Elder Sign, because it also deals with this. But it does so in the context of the First World War. I think it's an amazing story and I highly recommend it. And I would also really love to talk with people about comparing what Howard and Macken are doing. And the second thing I want to plug is that I've done an interview on Agnes, the late antique medieval and Byzantine podcast, uh, about the relationship that the Inklings, uh, that's people like Tolkien and Lewis, about the relationship that the Inklings had with Arthuriana, with the great scholar Serena Higgins. And so I hope you'll check those out if you are interested in Arthur, if you're interested in the Grail story, the Grail quest, and especially if you're interested in the way that modern fantasists have drawn on that material. Okay. Okay. That was a lot. Maybe I did not need to ramble on about Ovid for 10 minutes, so I will keep our next segment short. And here I just want to talk about what I think is the major weakness of The Hour of the Dragon by returning to our discussion about genre, uh, about what kind of story this is. Now, I've said already that I think there is a sword and sorceress story here in the middle of this book that is otherwise an epic fantasy. And that's kind of a problem, because it feels like two totally different books, one of which is not really a Conan story, at least not as we've grown to think about him when he's a barbarian adventurer rather than a Roman emperor but I think that this is largely a problem because the book is too short and it's unbalanced. And some of this is demonstrably the result of how and why Howard wrote the book. Although it was published serially in Weird Tales over the course of five issues, Howard actually wrote this book because he thought that he had a handshake deal to have it published as a book, all of it bound between two covers in the UK. But he needed to work very quickly to get it to the publisher. And not because there was any deadline, but because Howard lived paycheck to paycheck and he just didn't have the luxury of spending a year writing a novel on the gamble that he might get paid for it later. And Howard did what everyone else in the 1930s was doing to write novels. Writers, especially the magazine writers, tried to stitch together two or three short stories they'd already published and put in just enough new content to make the book seem entirely new. And in this case, the, the first part of the book, which is about 40% of the whole thing, the first part of the book is a reworking of his story, The Scarlet Citadel. And this is fine. I enjoyed that part of the book. And I also enjoyed the second part of the book. The problem is that they felt like two stories that don't belong together, two stories that don't have anything to do with each other. And some of this is because this middle part is rushed. I mean, it's horribly rushed. Conan travels to half a dozen locations in the span of only about 30,000 words, and it's utterly dizzying. And none of it really jives with the earlier parts, and also none of it really jives with the resolution. And Howard goes to great lengths to give satisfaction to the dispossessed Aquilonians, and I I did like that, but it undermines the seriousness of Conan's adventure to find the heart of Araman. And it doesn't at all serve the idea that the heart of Araman is the heart of Conan's kingdom. And as I said, I, I don't fault Howard for this. I mean, the guy needed to make a living. But if I could go back in time and talk FDR into making a universal basic income a part of the New Deal, uh, I would then after that go have a beer or two with Howard and talk to him about what to do with his book. And my suggestion would be to write a trilogy of three complete 100,000-word novels so that he can really take his time with the Grail quest and more slowly build up his world— and I would also tell him to make the various side quests that Conan has—side uh, quests like killing a giant snake—to uh, make those actually come to matter to the resolution of the story. And I would also suggest that he spread out the time frame here, to, to have the Grail quest take years, so that we the reader can see Aquilonia really and truly harmed by Conan's absence, and and, and perhaps even by his wound, which is something that I think Howard could have done a lot more with, and to, to great effect— all of this, then, would serve to make the last act, which in the present novel, though the way it exists now, is only two chapters. It would serve to make the final book of the trilogy take more effort to heal the land and to defeat Xaltatun, who perhaps has really revived Acheron as a kind of necromantic kingdom that must be defeated. And just to put the cherry on top of my fantastical rewrite of this story, I'd also probably have Conan die in this effort so that Howard could go write more boxing stories about Sailor Steve for a little while. Well, all right, that's my grievance about the book. And I've also added it to my list of things to do with the time machine. So let's talk about what I liked about this book. And there are a lot of things. And believe me, I loved The Wasteland Element. Uh, But I'm going to limit myself here to just one thing, and that is Howard's wordsmithing. As I've hinted at, in fact, really, probably, as I've made clear already, I don't think he's always the best at story structure and pacing, but Howard can write the hell out of a sentence in a paragraph. I've already read some of my favorite passages about the return of Acheron, also about the gray ape, but I do want to read just one more section, and this is from part of the final battle when the usurper is trapped in some magic fog. But now, without warning, a gray, fleecy mass came billowing down from the north, veiling the slopes, spreading out through the valleys. It blotted out the sun— the world became a blind, gray void in which visibility was limited to a matter of yards. Somewhere ahead of them, a faint vibration began, the rhythmic rumble of a drum. The drum was silent. The fog was fading away. First, the crest of cliffs came in sight above gray clouds, tall and spectral. Lower and lower crawled the mists, shrinking, fading. And I just love this. I hope you were able to hear all the alliteration, especially the heavy presence of V sounds in that first section. But I hope, too, that you could hear the drum, and then hear the silence, and feel the fog lifting. Uh, I I certainly do when I read this. It all just comes alive for me. And I think this is the enduring legacy of Howard. And it's the the reason Conan is still a living presence in our pop cultural landscape. But okay, I think that finally is going to bring my review to a close. Uh, This one went a lot longer than I'd intended. So I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and weaknesses that I focused on. And I especially hope that you'll talk with me about the the necessary and sufficient criteria for your definition of sword and sorcery. But also, let's talk about your favorite King Arthur stories. And I really hope you'll check out the other episodes I mentioned and join those conversations too. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at McDorman, and the network is at Medium. And next time, we're going to be reading Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. This is another book chosen by our Patreon supporters, and it is also another book with some clear ties to the Middle Ages. Uh, so if you want to start some kind of betting pool about how long that episode will run, or maybe invent an Ata's drinking game, well, how could I blame you? But until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.